my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, Putin, Ukraine and London grad. We'll be exploring why the UK plays such an important role in supporting the Russian president and what he hopes to achieve by amassing troops on the Ukrainian border. His foreign policy ever since he came to power reflects the plan to build a new empire, kind of a surrogate of the USSR and the Eurasian Union of States, and thus establish the world dominance. We'll be hearing from a Conservative MP who has challenged the government over lax financial regulations that have allowed Russian oligarchs to wash dirty money through the UK's finance system. And the Anglo-American investor turned campaigner, challenging Putin's wealthy supporters in the West. I think that there's a really unpleasant undercurrent here in the UK, which is that as so much money has come in from Russia and there's so many people feeding at the trough, those people feeding at the trough, some of whom are politically powerful, have persuaded their colleagues not to go tough on Russia. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times doesn't have wealthy corporate backers. We rely for income entirely on people like you. A subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, helps fund this podcast, Byline TV, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription to The Byline Times, thank you. What is Vladimir Putin's endgame in Ukraine? What can we in the UK do to frustrate him, given that Britain is unlikely to commit huge troop numbers to combat any military advance? Let's hear first from Zarina Zabriskie, a journalist and novelist who has written extensively about Putin for Byline Times. As a native of the president's hometown, St Petersburg, she witnessed firsthand his rise to power and told us on a previous podcast how he's created a kind of mafia state in Russia – where those who've benefited financially from his support are expected to continue doing his bidding around the world. What does she think is going on? The situation is very serious. It did not come up just now. It has been getting more and more dangerous over the number of years, of course, ever since 2014, when Russia annexed the peninsula of Crimea, and started the war in the eastern parts of Ukraine. However, if we look back at history, we see that Putin has been preoccupied with the idea of creating a Eurasian state ever since he came to power. And that's what's important to understand. Putin was heartbroken by the fall of the Soviet empire, and he spoke about it many times. And so if we look at his annual address to the Duma, to the Federal Assembly of Russia, you'll see that every year there's a transcript at the Kremlin website in English too. He's talking about the importance of the Eurasian state or Eurasian coalition. 
As early as 2000, he said the ideas of the age-old community and the interconnectedness of people inhabiting the expanses of Eurasia from the Baltic to the Carpathians to the Pacific Ocean is important now. And then for the last 30 years, Putin has made similar statements every year. And his foreign policy ever since he came to power reflects the plan to build a new empire, kind of a surrogate of the USSR and the Eurasian Union of States, and thus establish the world dominance. And the recent events, if you have followed, only confirm this intention. Perhaps you heard about the Russian peacekeepers, quote-unquote, in Kazakhstan in January 2022. So here it's important to know that the former president of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, is also the supporter of the Eurasian theory. And then we see the Russian military presence in Belarus with the last European dictator Lukashenko, right? So this is the way of centering this former Soviet republic's around Russia as its core. And of course, Ukraine is a major, would be the major part of this coalition, except for Ukraine doesn't want to be in it. The majority of the population in Ukraine want to be with the European Union. They want to be a part of the NATO. They want to be the part of the EU. I've just recently came from Ukraine, and I talked to many people there. They have the European set of mind. They don't want to center around Putin's Russia. There are commentators in the West, in the UK, and in the United States who think that Putin is just posturing that this is some way to leave a diplomatic advantage against Britain and the United States. But you see this then as a genuine attempt to expand the boundaries of Russia and to create this, as you describe it, this Eurasian empire. Well, yes, we need to look at his actions. I mean, he did annex overnight the peninsula of Crimea, which now Russia claims as its own territory, and it is not. It's a part of Ukraine. We see the eight years of war in eastern Ukraine that absolutely exhausted Ukraine. Again, I talk to people, I've seen the exhaustion, the, the fatigue from eight years of war. When you talk to people, it's very palpable in Ukraine. And we also saw the military presence in many former Soviet republics, in Moldova, in Georgia, And we see more of the hybrid war operations and campaigns everywhere in the world, and particularly in the West and in the U.S. and in the U.K. We covered with you and many times the Russian interference and the hybrid war in the U.K. So we we see how he puts these actions into reality. And of course, there's an element of bluffing. We have to remember that Putin comes from the mafia background. I'm from St. Petersburg, and I was there around the same time when he was there, although he's much older, of course, but it didn't change. And it is a bandit tactic, you know, the racketeering. When they used to, I used to translate for Western businessmen in Russia in the 90s. And I remember 
when the bandits would come to the office to claim their protection money called Krisha, and they would come armed with big guns sticking out of their pockets and flexing their muscles. And this is the same move. They flex 100,000 or more troops. Nobody knows for sure. Everybody's claiming a different number. But they flex this muscle there to negotiate what they want. And are there other reasons beyond that? The political reasons, important ones, include Putin's long-term goal that we talked about in the past to weaken the NATO, the EU, and the US. Then there is a domestic goal for him, which is exciting the patriotic moods to increase his popularity domestically. And the Kremlin is known to be using the siege mentality, an external enemy concept, to control the population at home. Very importantly, the economic and strategic reasons, and there are multiple of them. For instance, the Kremlin needs the fresh water supply from the major Ukrainian river in order to supply the Crimea. It provides about 85% of the drinking water there. And we also should not forget the existential reasons and psychology. And Peter Pomerantsev has a great article in Time talking about the family dynamics projected on geopolitics, where Russia is a big brother and the former Soviet republics are you know, the part of this dysfunctional family. And last but not the least, Putin is about to face his own mortality, and he's turning 70, and the the numbers are important to him. We know that from the past, from the history. And so sort of like the main character in Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenet, he, he deals with facing his own mortality by using the idea to take the world along with him, to go with a bang. And when you talk about hybrid war in the UK... You're talking presumably about the murder attempt on Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury, the murder of Alexander Peripolichny, who was a, a whistleblower in the Magnitsky case, which impacted ultimately upon President Putin, and also the cyber wars that Russia or its agents have engaged in on organisations in the UK. Not in particular, because the murders of all these multiple former uh, Soviet and Russian spies are more the revenge acts. They're also meant to scare and to incite fear, that's true, but the major aspects of the hybrid war that we need to pay attention to are the donating millions of dollars to the Western politicians, political parties and campaigns and influencing the decisions, decision makers, elections, then say lawfare. They use lawsuits to whitewash their reputation and to break their opponents financially because lawfare is, is very important in the hybrid war. Then the Russian oligarchs invest in Russian propaganda outlets that broadcast abroad to form the public opinion and manipulate the political life. And with the same goal, they buy and own Western mass media sources, say newspapers, to form the public opinion and manipulate the population. Because the mass media, the major, major weapon in the hybrid war. So it's really then about information wars, intervening 
through funding in big debates in Western countries, not least in the UK, in Brexit, where a group of MPs on the Intelligence and Security Committee noted that the British government had failed to investigate potential Russian involvement in the Brexit campaign. That's exactly right. That's a great example. And another example would be the climate change hoax campaign. The Kremlin is really interested in continuing selling oil and gas because they need the profit from the natural resources. So there is the connection between the climate change denial and the Kremlin energy interests. And so they would invest in various mass media sources pushing articles, pieces of information, documentaries that will push their line of thought. And they would also support it with an army of trolls and bots, the troll factories that use the data as a weapon to amplify the messages of this mass media. And all of this is run with the money from the oligarchs. And when we spoke last time, Serena, you talked about Russia effectively being a, a mafia state so that people who have benefited financially from their connections with Putin and who have salted their money away abroad in countries like the United Kingdom, they still owe Putin. And so many of these oligarchs can be assumed one way or another to be working to further Putin's interests in the West. This is exactly right, Adrian. You know, like sometimes they compare mafia to a spider web or a giant octopus or something like this, but it's more like a cancer disease that strikes the organism. And so in this sense, everything in Russia domestically becomes an intrinsic part of the system or system. So oligarchs do not own their fortunes and businesses, not in the Western sense of ownership, right? Uh, they're like the vassals of the past and they must pay their dues. Again, I mentioned the protection money called Krisha into this communal fund, the abshak of the Sistema. And then in return, the system supports them, and not just supports them, it allows them to exist. Because if they do not follow it, there's no escape. They will be eliminated, they will be imprisoned, they will be killed, their funds will be expropriated by the state. And we're being very careful in this podcast not to name any of the oligarchs who may be connected with Putin, because as you mentioned, there is this policy of lawfare in the United Kingdom, in particular, the ability to use libel laws in order to silence opponents of Putin or those who question him. The libel system in the UK is extremely expensive. Ordinary journalists don't necessarily have the money and the backing to fight back against the oligarchs who might take legal action against them. So it's a great way to ensure that opposition voices are not heard, even thousands of miles from Russia. That is exactly right. And we all are very aware of that and have to actually exercise certain caution in covering the events. One final thought, Zarina. The UK is belatedly moving to restrict some of the shell companies, or says it's moving to restrict some of the shell companies, which oligarchs 
hide behind after they've moved their money out of Russia. How significant is that, do you think? Uh, it's crucial. Uh, they ha- should have done it a long, long time ago because uh, we talked about this in the past, how the Kremlin steals basically the money from selling the natural resources, gas and oil, and then they need to hide it somewhere. So they siphon this billions and billions of dollars and they hide them through a system called like Russian nesting dolls, uh, through the number of shell companies somewhere offshore. So cutting the access to these funds is like cutting oxygen to them. And without this money, they wouldn't be able to conduct the hybrid war against the West, against the free world. Zarina Zabriskie. So how well is the UK doing in cutting off the cash flow to wealthy Russians associated with Putin here? Not as well as it should be, according to the Centre for American Progress, a think tank which has close ties to the US administration. They recently reported that, and I quote, uprooting Kremlin-linked oligarchs will be a challenge given the close ties between Russian money and the United Kingdom's ruling Conservative Party, the press and its real estate and financial industry. This has all led to London being dubbed Londongrad, or the laundromat, where dirty money is washed clean. One man who's done his best to choke off this financial supply line is Bill Browder, who ran an investment fund, Hermitage, which in the early 2000s had a huge portfolio in Russia. As we'll hear, after becoming embroiled in a politically driven human tragedy, Browder now directs his efforts instead to the Magnitsky Justice Campaign, which aims to use the power of the law to bring Putin and his allies to heel. He told me when things started going wrong for him in Russia. Well, they pretty much started going wrong from the moment that I started investing. I went out to Russia in the um, early 1990s as Russia was just going through its privatization program, where they basically gave everything away for free to the people. And I set up an investment fund to buy shares in the newly privatized companies. And I ended up discovering pretty early on that even if you owned a share of a company, you really didn't get a share of the profits because the companies were owned or majority owned by these people called the oligarchs. And the oligarchs were taking 100% of the profits for themselves out the back door. And so as an investor, the only way that I could really deal with this was to try to find a way to stop the stealing. The way that I decided to stop the stealing was to research how they did the stealing, then expose it through the international media. And through these name and shame campaigns, in some cases, the stealing diminished or even stopped. And for a while, that was a very profitable enterprise. And it became even more profitable when Vladimir Putin first came to power because he was fighting with the same guys I was fighting with. The oligarchs were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me. And so we ended up with a strange alignment of interests where I would expose the oligarchs and he would step in using whatever power he had to crack down on them. And this worked perfectly for a while until he decided to win his war with the oligarchs by arresting the richest oligarch in the country, a man named Mikhail Hordakovsky, who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. He arrested him, he put him on trial, and he allowed the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia on trial sitting in a cage. 
And when the other oligarchs turned on their TVs and saw that picture, they went to Putin and said, what do we have to make sure we don't sit in a cage? And Putin said, real straightforward, 50%. Not 50% for um, Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, but 50% for Vladimir Putin personally. And at that moment in time, Putin became the richest man in the world. And at that moment in time, all of my exposés about the oligarchs were no longer going after his enemies, but they were going after his own personal financial interests. And so in November of 2005, I was expelled from the country. I was declared a threat to national security. In 2007, my offices in Moscow were raided. I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to investigate the office raid, and he discovered that the raid was part of a complex financial fraud, which was being committed by members of the Moscow law enforcement agencies, in which they stole $230 million of taxes that I paid to the Russian government. Sergei discovered this, he exposed it, he testified against the officials involved, and he was subsequently arrested by the same officials, thrown in pretrial detention, tortured in pretrial detention for 358 days, and ultimately killed by eight riot guards with rubber batons on November 16, 2009. For me, that was a turning point. I could no longer be just sitting back and trying to do business when I had this enormous burden of guilt hanging over me. And so I made a vow to his memory, to his family, and to myself that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and go after the people who killed him to make sure they face justice. And for the last 12 years, that's what I've been doing. And it ultimately ended up uh, with a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act, named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And the Magnitsky Act imposes asset freezes and visa bans on the people who killed him and the people who commit other gross human rights abuses. And the Magnitsky Act became a piece of legislation in the United States in 2012. And when it was passed, Vladimir Putin went completely out of his mind. He retaliated by banning the adoption of Russian orphans by American families, which is a quite extraordinary thing to do because these orphans and often weren't being adopted. They would end up dying in orphanages because often many of them had diseases and various other medical ailments. And so he's effectively sentencing some of his orphans to death in order to protest the Magnitsky Act. And he made it his single largest foreign policy priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. He even sent in an agent, a female lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya at a Trump Tower on June 9th, 2016, to meet with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort before Trump was elected to say if Trump gets elected, could he repeal the Magnitsky Act for the Russians? So we know that Vladimir Putin doesn't like this, but instead of being intimidated by any of these actions, we carried on and the Canadians subsequently passed a Magnitsky Act. Here in Britain, Magnitsky Act was passed. In the European Union, the Magnitsky Act was passed. In Australia, the Magnitsky Act was passed. And we now, if you add up all the countries of the European Union, plus a few others, we have 34 countries with Magnitsky Acts. And this really is the tool that upsets the Russians the most because they steal money in Russia and then keep it safe in the West. And we've now found a way of making their money unsafe in the West. 
And since Vladimir Putin and the people around him value money more than human life, this is really the tool to stop them from doing bad things. The UK government has introduced a version of the Magnitsky Act, but has delayed the Economic Crime Bill, which would enable it to further target oligarchs who launder their money through London. What is the difference between the Economic Crime Bill and the UK version of the Magnitsky Act? So the UK version of the Magnitsky Act says that the UK has the ability to freeze the assets and ban the travel of people who commit gross human rights abuses and those who are involved in large-scale corruption. And it's a great piece of legislation. And the only downside at the moment to the Magnitsky Act is it's not being used broadly against enough bad guys around the world. It's been used relatively on a limited basis, and it hasn't been used that much on the oligarchs of the Putin regime, and that is something that could be greatly improved upon. The crime bill, which was pending, is a very important piece of complementary legislation, which says that, for example, you can't hide your money behind shell companies in the UK. If you own a piece of property or if you own a company, you have to disclose the beneficial ownership. And so if we're trying to freeze the assets of individuals and we don't know who owns those assets, it makes it much harder for the Magnitsky Act or other things like it to have an impact. And so it's quite extraordinary that the Economic Crimes Bill, which has been on the front burner for a long time, continues to be delayed and delayed and delayed. Yeah, so it's one thing to have a named oligarch or a named kleptocrat, somebody who's stolen money effectively from the people of Russia, and have the ability to issue economic sanctions against them. But if we don't know by what means or through which company the oligarch is hiding the money, if there are no names or if there are false names, we can't get at them. And that's the additional thing that the Economic Crimes Bill would bring into play. It's a very important piece of legislation, and the recent delay is inexplicable, and it really needs to be put on the fast track to get this thing done. How significant do you think the Magnitsky Act and then potentially the Economic Crime Bill will be in terms of combating Russia's aggression towards Ukraine? The Magnitsky Act could be the primary policy to prevent Russia from going into Ukraine. At the moment, Vladimir Putin is interested in Ukraine because having a war or a military conflict solidifies his support in Russia. He's been a dictator for 20 years. Things aren't going so well for the people of Russia. For a long time, he blamed it on others, but he now owns whatever's happening to the people of Russia. And they're pretty unhappy. They're hungry and cold and tired and not feeling very good about themselves. And normally, those sentiments can make a leader, even a dictator, lose power. And so he needs to create a nationalist fervor. And that's what the threats of invading Ukraine are all about. And so that's the upside. The risk of him doing it is pretty limited from his perspective, because on one hand, the West is threatening sanctions, but he's seen with his own eyes that the kind of sanctions that have been used before have not really had an impact on him. 
Now, the Magnitsky Act is different because if we here in the UK use the Magnitsky Act in a targeted basis against the oligarchs who holds Putin's money, then we're in a much better position because Putin would be personally affected by that. And he has a lot of money. He holds it through these oligarchs. And those oligarchs have that money here. And so the Magnitsky Act could be a determinant factor in this whole equation. But that depends on several things. One, it depends on the government actually sanctioning the people who hold his money. If you look at previous sanctions lists, they pick out people who are not the people who hold the money. And so Putin kind of laughs at these sanctions. But if you sanction oligarchs, and particularly oligarchs who are close to Putin, who are his trustees, that would be an entirely different thing. And then as far as the economic crimes bill, to have that in place and to have it in place in a way that makes it harder to hide from the sanctions would be a really important part of the whole exercise. But you're suggesting that despite the introduction of the Magnitsky Act into the UK, it's not being used properly as it stands. It's not being used to its full effect. Why is that, do you think? I think that there's a really unpleasant undercurrent here in the UK, which is that as so much money has come in from Russia and there's so many people feeding at the trough, those people feeding at the trough, some of whom are politically powerful, have persuaded their colleagues not to go tough on Russia. And I've seen in the House of Lords, for example, that there are a number of lords who are specifically on Russia's payroll to try to soften the blow of any type of policy on Russia in terms of sanctions. And as long as you have all those types of people firmly embedded in the power structure of the UK, it creates a real problem in terms of implementing these laws. Critics have pointed to the fact that Russian donors have contributed something like £2 million to the Conservative Party since 2019. They also point to the lack of an investigation into any possible Kremlin involvement in the EU referendum. Do you think these could be factors at play? Well, yes, of course. Any kind of money sloshing around from Russia has got to be suspect. And by the way, it's not a conservative thing. I've seen Russian money being paid to labor lords to specifically fight against the Magnitsky Act. And so everybody is compromised here. And what really needs to happen, I think, is that anybody who's taken any Russian money has to automatically recuse themselves from any part of this policy discussion and not be involved behind the scenes because we're now facing an issue of national security. It's no longer, you know, who's rubbing my back, I'm going to rub your back. This is an issue of national security. What Putin is doing and potentially doing in Ukraine is as grave and significant as, as Hitler invading Czechoslovakia in the 1930s. If we allow him to get away with this, this won't be the last country he takes over. And you believe today, at this moment, under the legislation that is already there, under the UK Magnitsky Act, Britain could do more to bring Putin and his allies to heel. If the Magnitsky Act were to be used, and we made a list of the top 50 oligarchs in Russia, and we sanctioned five of them today, before Putin invades Ukraine, just to show him we're serious, and then we give him 10 days 
to withdraw from the border and move his troops back, or we sanction another five. And then we say to him, if you cross the border, we're going to sanction all 50 under the Magnitsky Act. I believe that that's such a severe punishment that Putin won't invade Ukraine. And just explain what that would do, what that would mean in practical terms for those oligarchs. Well, the moment that they get put on the Magnitsky list, and by the way, I think this has to be done in conjunction with the United States, can't be done just with Great Britain alone. If the moment that a person gets put on the Magnitsky list, a notification gets sent out to all banks in the world that this person is now in violation of British sanctions, US sanctions, whoever else wants to join. And what that means is that any bank who continues to do business with that person is breaking the law of the United States and Great Britain. So what do the banks do? They immediately freeze the accounts. They don't want to be in any way breaking the law. Nobody will do business with these people because they don't want to be breaking the law. And so a person on the Magnitsky list goes from being a big business person, a big investor, a wealthy individual, to being somebody who doesn't have access to their capital and effectively becomes a financial pariah in the world. It's a very harsh punishment for a rich person and something which they all dread. And to the extent that one person is sanctioned, other ones are sitting in terror wondering if they're going to be sanctioned. It really is a powerful tool. And interestingly, it's an asymmetric tool because it's not like we keep our money in Russia. It's not like they can freeze our money, we freeze theirs. Because they keep all their money in the West, they can't retaliate symmetrically on this issue. And that's always been a big problem for Putin and one of the reasons he hates the Magnitsky Act so much. I just want to reflect briefly, if you don't mind, Bill, on your own personal story as part of this you have been arrested albeit briefly in spain you've lost your business interests in russia how much of this is animated by personal animosity on your part towards vladimir putin a hundred percent of it is motivated by my thirst for justice for sergey magnitsky sergey magnitsky was a 37 year old lawyer with a life ahead of him, a great life ahead of him in Russia. He was an idealistic and moral young man who deserved to be treated as a hero. And he was slowly tortured to death for his patriotism and for trying to expose the truth. And for me, his death and the way in which he died, so traumatic, so upsetting, and so life-changing that drives me every day to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. That's Bill Browder, head of the Magnitsky Justice Campaign. As Bill and I discussed, the UK Economic Crime Bill, which would make it easier to restrict cash from kleptocrats and oligarchs circulating in the UK, is long delayed. And Tory MP Lord Agnew recently quit as a minister because he feared it was being held up again. Since then, ministers have insisted that the legislation will go ahead and Business Secretary Liz Truss also announced tough new sanctions on Russians who support the Kremlin's aggression against Ukraine. But why is all this taking so long? Critics have accused the Conservatives of being too friendly with wealthy Russians who've donated almost £2 million to the party since 2019. 
and MPs on the Intelligence and Security Committee in 2020 condemned the government's failure to investigate attempts by the Kremlin to interfere with the EU referendum. I've been speaking to Kevin Hollingrake, Conservative MP for Thurston Moulton, who told me why he thinks new laws are urgently needed. What these Russian oligarchs do, of course, they want to move their money out of Russia. They want to be able to spend it on the on the high life, really, with uh, you know expensive boats or its houses in London or it's travelling abroad, whatever. If they can't get the money out of the country, they can't do all those things. So they have to do that by illicit means. They can't just simply be seen to have stolen that money and put it into different jurisdictions. They have to hide it. So they put it into shell companies, companies that have no apparent owner or an owner that's not apparently connected to themselves. So this is how they move the money around the world. And sadly, lots of those shell companies and trusts are UK-based because our rules on establishing a company in the UK are very, very lax. It's very cheap to do, and very easy to hide the ownership of those companies and therefore those assets. It's the same with UK property as well. So we don't know actually owns lots of the properties in London, for example, in expensive areas like Belgravia and Chelsea and wherever else. And this is seen as a great way for people who are stealing money in their own countries or extorting money or in, involved in terrorism or organised crime to move their money around using facilities provided for them in the UK. How much of the money emanating from Russia, money that has been, in the eyes of many people, stolen from the Russian people, how much of that do you think flows through the City of London or London generally? Well, I don't know percentage, but a very, very large amount of it. I mean, the good news is that we have the capability ourselves to domestically deliver on this. And we've made the commitment for to do that, to tighten up these rules so it makes it much more difficult for these criminals to basically carry out their enterprises, which is you know, which is impacting all of our daily lives, which is drug dealing or, or people trafficking, all these things affect UK people. And we can close this down pretty easily by introducing the legislation that we were called for last week. The legislation has been promised now for a number of years. Why the delay? Well, I think it's fair to say it's probably not the a piece of legislation with the greatest public appeal. It probably doesn't register on most people's radar. It looks like, you know, if you're talking about money laundering, it sounds like something for white-collar crime that doesn't affect ordinary people's lives, but it couldn't be further from the truth. It facilitates so many low-level crimes. So I think it's probably not being seen as a political priority, but that's not the point of this business, in my view. Our job is to do the right thing, which actually does have a profound impact on people's daily lives. So... We need to get the, the political agenda is the answer to your question. If there's any good side to what Russia are doing in terms of threatening Ukraine is that this has come right to the back to the top of the political agenda because we know that our ability to sanction Russia is limited because they use these nefarious underhand means of accessing their money. So if we simply use other sanctions, it's not quite so effective. So this now has become a political priority again. And it's great to hear today on the floor of the House here and Treasury questions, the Chancellor's making a real commitment to bringing forward this legislation as soon as possible and probably in the next parliamentary term, which is effectively this year. Critics have blamed the delay partly on the fact that the Conservative Party receives a significant amount in donations from Russian donors. Do you think that is a reason for the delay? 
Some would say that. I don't agree with that. I think that's a simplistic reading of things. All legislation has to be properly considered before it's introduced. As I say, there are other political reasons why this hasn't been prioritised. But the government has committed to prioritise it. So it's not as if the government's not willing to do this. We've just got to find the parliamentary time to do it. That's Kevin Hollinrake, MP. We shall see what happens when the Queen's speech is announced later this year, setting out the parliamentary agenda for the next session. In the meantime, just a special word of thanks from me to all the people who help promote this podcast on social media. People like Climate Action Mum and Carol Murray. Every share on Facebook, every retweet really does make a difference. So cheers and thanks also to Harvey White. He does so much excellent production work behind the scenes. This podcast, just to remind you, is funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at our equally brilliant newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. This has been The Byline Times Podcast. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'm Adrian Goldberg. See you next time. <laughs>